This is Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Grass withers, the flower fades, word of our God stands forever. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. These are the words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, A Call to Discipleship. Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor during the rise of the Nazi party in Germany, and he started a movement called the Confessing Church to counter the the Nazi demands that the church promote anti-Semitism. Eventually, Bonhoeffer, throughout a few-year period there, is arrested by and imprisoned by the Nazis, and he's eventually killed in a concentration camp only two weeks before it is liberated. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. There's another quote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, to gain that which he cannot lose. These are words written in the journal of Jim Elliott as he was headed to the mission field in Ecuador. Spent many years working there among the natives and was launching Operation Aka is what they called it. And it was intended to reach a particularly violent tribe with the good news of Jesus Christ. Everyone was afraid of this tribe. But he and four other men, Nate Saint, Ed McCauley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Yordain sang the hymn, We Rest on Thee. It's a great hymn. I recommend you look it up. Sang the hymn, We Rest on Thee. They climbed into Nate's missionary plane, and they flew to the planned location, landing on a sandbar on the side of the river, set up camp, and in a couple of days, they made contacts with, with a few locals. Very excited following that first contact. They woke up the next day to a war party, and they met the end of their spears. They were armed with handguns, but they refused to give the natives the bullets, and instead they gave the natives their lives that this tribe might be reached with the good news of the Savior. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. 
In the book Radical by David Platt, this is an account from a pastor, David Platt, he writes this. He says, I was in Indonesia, the country with the largest Muslim population in the world, teaching in an Indonesian seminary. Before they graduate, the students in this seminary are required to plant a church with at least 30 new baptized believers in a Muslim community. It's part of the requirement. It's part of the curriculum. If you want to graduate from this seminary, you plan a church with 30 new baptized believers in a Muslim community. David Platt goes on. He says, I spoke at their commencement ceremony, and as the graduates walked across the stage, I was captivated by the humble yet confident look on their faces. Every one of them that graduated had fulfilled the church planting requirement. However, the most solemn part of the day was a moment of silence for two of their classmates who had died at the hands of their Muslim persecutors as they were seeking to fulfill the requirement of this seminary to plant a church with 30 new baptized believers. It cost them their life. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What does the life of a Christian look like? What does the life of a Christian look like? What, what do we want people to come to Jesus? And why do we want people to come to Jesus and to trust in Jesus? What are the reasons that you've heard? Come to Jesus because what? what, what is the, what's the cat? What, what are we pursuing and persuading people to come to Jesus for? Come to Jesus and he'll make your life better. Come to Jesus and he will help you achieve your dreams. Come to Jesus and he'll make sure your plans will succeed. Come to Jesus, he will help you out. How about this marketing campaign? Come to Jesus and die. Come to Jesus and give up everything. How's that one going to sell? Should we put that out on a billboard out here on the side of the church? Come to Jesus and die. Come to Jesus and give everything up. How about come to Jesus and lose everything? Or come to Jesus and watch your dreams die? None of those are going to play real well, are they, in our culture today? They're not going to play real well, but here's the truth. This is Jesus' call to discipleship. If anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What we've done in our culture today and in many of our churches that we've learned that people, that Society is really self-focused and is really self-concerned. We love ourselves. We are very self-focused, self-concerned. What's in it for me? I've got to do what's best for me. We love ourselves. And so if you want people to come to Jesus, it's popular in churches today, you can't tell them they're going to have to die to self and die to their dreams. No way, because if you do that, who's going to want Jesus then? If you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him, we can't put that out in the front of the church because we want people to want to, want to come in. We, don't, we can't do that. Instead, we're going to tell them that you come to Jesus and all your dreams come true. The problem is, that's not the call of Christ. Plainly written right here in our text for this morning. That is not the call of Christ. Here it is, plainly spelled up. If anyone... Anyone, that's a big word. If anyone would come to me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's where we're going this morning. 
to, to cover with our text, we first need to, issue, need to deal with this issue at the beginning. Right after this confession, these men are on this mountaintop. They have just learned Jesus is the Messiah. They have just had this just absolutely, literally a mountaintop moment. It's just revealed that to the disciples, Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one. And normally that would be this climactic moment, and it is in our narrative. We finally realize, oh, this is who you are. It's like one of those superhero movies where the guy is just normal all along, and then all of a sudden you find out, that guy's Superman? What? You know, it's revealed, here he is. Bruce Wayne is Batman? I mean, it's like one of those reveal moments, this great moment of this movie. The hero is here. Yes, finally, the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. Now let's go and take over and and build the kingdom. But no. Instead, Jesus reveals to his disciples, though they don't get it, that his mission is not to take over the world, but to give his life for the world. His mission is not to take over with political force. His mission is to give his life for the world. There are many theories as to why this kind of messianic, it's called the messianic secret. He says, don't tell anyone. Verse 21, he strictly charges and commands them to tell this to no one. But I think it it makes some sense. To me, the one that makes the most sense is that he is protecting, he doesn't want this word to get out because people will try to, by force, Put him forward as the political leader. And that's not what his mission is. So he tells his disciples in verse 21 that this grand reality, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ is here to keep it secret. He tells them to keep this grand reality and tell it to no one at the moment because instead of great worldly success on the horizon for Jesus, instead of great worldly success on the horizon for Jesus, there's great suffering. The Savior, the Messiah, he says, is going to be rejected by the elders and the chiefs, priests, and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's going from the mountaintop to the pit of the valley in about one verse. On the Christ, on the Messiah, he's here's the Christ. Yes, yes, Peter, this is who I am. I'm going to be murdered, killed, and on the third day he's going to be raised. As shocking as this is, that turn alone (laughs) is shocking enough. Jesus goes on. And he turns and he makes this marketing plea to his people. He says to all. You can look down in verse 23, 24. He said to all. Everyone, he's talking to his disciples about this messianic secret. And then he turns to everyone who's gathered around. And he says to all. This is not second-tier Christianity. This is not special for the apostles. This is to all who would come after me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He doesn't say to all. You know, He turns and says to all, you know, if a few of you want to get to second-tier Christianity, this is what you're going to do. Those of you who want to get next-level stuff, you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. No. He says anyone. To all, he says, to anyone who would follow after me, come to me, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. To follow Christ, to trust Christ, to have Christ as your Savior and as your Messiah, what follows is to be said of you. This is elementary, ordinary Christianity. This is where where we come in at. If anyone would come after me, deny himself, take up his cross, 
and follow me. But maybe this is a rare moment, right? I mean, so I, as I carry on with this, you know, here, maybe this is, there's four Gospels. There's, Luke has a, got 24 chapters and it's pretty long. Maybe this is a rare occasion. Like this is a special moment in time that Jesus is saying that. Well, it isn't. And let's just quickly, if you still have your Bible out, you can look at the end of chapter 9. We won't get there for another month, but so we can read it this morning. <laughs> You'll forget it in a month. Luke chapter 9 Verses 57, he says again, as they are going along the road, some said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but for the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those in my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. These are words from the mouth of Jesus. You can flip on back to chapter 12, verses 49 through 53. Here's the kind of um, magical life Jesus is bringing for those who would follow him. Uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth. And would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. mother Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Here is the easy life promised to those who will come to Jesus. Family strife and split for coming to Jesus. But we're not done. Go over to chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. In case you're still wondering, chapter 14, verses 25 through 33, the cost of discipleship. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it will begin to mock him. Otherwise, I'll be able to finish. Verse 31, Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a long ways off, he'll send a delegation and ask for terms of peace. So therefore, so therefore, those two examples, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It's not an isolated term from Jesus. The call that he is sending out here, think of it this way. When Jesus is not after easy confessors. And it's kind of built that way in our modern Christianity. We have, you know, you come front, you sign a card, you pray a prayer, you're in Jesus's now. Do you want Jesus? You know, okay, you, you, you'll start taking the name of Christian, you're, you're Jesus's now. But Jesus is not after easy confessors. He's not after those who have their lives and then put a label of Christian over top of it while they really do nothing different. They, they persist in everything for themselves. 
Jesus is not after easy confessors. He is calling people to truly follow Him. And the way of following Him is the way of the cross. Jesus is calling disciples. This is so corny, but think of it like this. When Jesus calls for disciples, He's calling for disciples. Disciples who have died to themselves. Disciples. When Jesus wants disciples... He is calling for disciples. We are a people. You get the difference there? Die in the front. Wasn't that cute? Yeah, it wasn't. Okay. He, he is calling for a people dead to themselves and alive to him. We are a people who love to claim this interest and that pursuit. Oh, but when, when, when he's calling us, he is calling us. Following Christ is a pursuit that causes the death of your self-interest. So to get back to our text. There's, it's broken down into three easy sections this morning from this verse uh, 24 and verse 23 and 24. If anyone would come after me, three things. He must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Three things. Deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So let's look at those three things. What does it mean to deny himself? And is there any thought more countercultural than this thought today? This initial call to discipleship from Jesus to deny, him, to deny yourself. What is virtue number one? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Virtue number one has become cardinal sin number one in our culture. This idea to deny yourself is blasphemy in our modern culture. This idea that you would ever deny yourself anything that in the heart of your hearts you feel so strongly about. Our culture says no way that can never be right, that can never be true. What we are about in America is self. Self. And so Jesus right off the bat is just going for the jugular. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. The most important thing you can do for yourself, according to all the voices that speak to us today, is to deny yourself nothing. You see it, you want it, work for it, whatever you got to do, get it. Deny yourself nothing. You are the captain of your soul. You know what you want and the most important virtue that is driven over and over again into our heads is the virtue that you must be true to yourself. You must love yourself. And we say things like that, that the only way you can really love someone else is if you first love yourself. That is, that is mind-blowing. I mean, the idea of self-love has become so elevated that instead of seeing the other side of the coin of love for others is deny yourself, we see the coin as love others means you've got to love yourself. Love yourself. Love for self. It is our culture's Number one virtue. But Jesus is calling for you to deny yourself. I'm not talking about self-hate or an absence of self-respect. Understand yourself to be a mago Dei created in the image of God. Self-denial is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Thinking less and less about yourself. Your desires, your wants, your wishes, and your dreams. They all take a back seat to the purpose that God would have for you. Philip Graham Ryken said this in his commentary. Instead of gratifying ourselves or indulging ourselves in all the ways of our sinful nature desires. Instead of. 
this sounds like us, right? Instead of gratifying ourselves, indulging ourselves in all the ways of our sinful desires, we are called to deny ourselves, rejecting anything and everything that will get in the way of offering ourselves for God's service. Honestly, when is the last time, when have you said to yourself, self, you're talking to yourself, self, what you want here is not what matters. What you want is not what matters here. Be quiet. When have you said that to yourself? This inner dialogue, like I said, it's cultural blasphemy. To ever say, self, what you want here is not what's most important. Be quiet. This is what Christ is calling for. It's cultural blasphemy. Our entire sexual revolution that we have going on here in America is with its preferences, my, my, I want this, I want that, with its gender identity confusion, with its promiscuity, with its pornography. All of this is justified by this one letter, and it's the letter I. I want, I feel, I like, I desire, I will. This is what we are running on. Now, you can march down that road. I can't stop you, and if you want to go down that road, you can But the life of a Christian is not that road. The life of a Christian is not that road. It is when Christ calls, He calls you to deny yourself, confessing that your desires are indeed depraved, self-focused, bent in on Himself, and they are sinful. And that is what repentance is. When Christ is out calling for repent. And trust, believe the gospel. He's calling for this realization. My desires, my self-will is polluted and depraved and diseased, inward bent, selfish and sinful. And I turn from that and I turn to Christ. This is what repentance is. Turning from self and self-reliance. It's one way to look at repentance. And we've lost the concept of sin in modern churches. And we've lost, therefore, we've lost repentance And by consequence, we've lost any sort of idea of self-denial. The Christian does not have the claim on their life, their rights as over and against God's. But with Paul, they say, like it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, that we are not our own. We are bought with a price. Therefore, we seek to glorify God with our bodies and with our everything. We are not self-seekers, but self-deniers. He turns and he says to all, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself. Second thing he says is to take up his cross daily. The cross is an instrument of execution. And we've got them around. We've got a gold one back here. And it looks pretty and they're nice. And there's a clock one there. And they're they're everywhere. We decorate with crosses. But when you think about it, the cross is a gory, gory system of execution. There's nothing pretty about a cross. When they strip Jesus naked, rip out his beard, beat him till he's bleeding and nail him to a piece of rough wood and then hang him on it, suspend him in the sky, that is not a beautiful thing. That is what the cross looks like. And what does Jesus call? Deny himself and take up his cross. Those who take up crosses are giving up their lives. Leon Morris says it this way in his commentary, when a man from one of their villages took up a cross and went off with a little band of Roman soldiers, he was on a one-way journey. He's not coming back. The idea of taking up your cross communicates a very strong message. 
My life is done. I am taking up my cross. I am marching off. And no, friends, I will not be back to where I came from. Take up his cross. Continuing the thought of self-denial, the Christian takes up his cross daily. And what can this mean? The world does not love its creator. In fact, it hates the creator. And therefore, the world will hate all who are his. Do not think that the world will love you for your decision to turn from sin and to trust in Christ. The world will not. And as Jesus says in John 15, 20, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Do not be surprised if your culture does not applaud you for having a biblical standard of morality. It will not. If you dare to say when issues are brought up, what does the Bible say about that? You will not be thanked and patted on the back for that viewpoint. You will not be. You will be jeered. The statement feels, it it will not applaud you for that sort of a stance. It will not. This statement of take up your cross feels like this. It says, are you willing to get up every day and say to your Savior, if all goes against me, if all reject me, and if they demand of me even my life, I will, with your help, with God's help, take up my cross and follow you. The Christian is to live with his death upon his back. I turns and says to all, if anyone would come after me, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow him. At the core of this denial is not, is not a core of this is not for denial, um, for stagnation. Like deny yourself, take up your cross, and then just die. It's not for stagnation. Not to go nowhere, it's to do nothing. It is to follow Jesus. You follow someone who is going somewhere. And my friends, following Jesus does lead somewhere. Jesus leads you through the path of self-denial, through the path of cross-bearing and following him to the promise of true gain and true joy. True gain and true joy. Commentator says this, everyone who tries selfishly to secure for himself pleasure and happiness in this life will in fact doom his life to failure. He will never find real joy or full life. He commits spiritual suicide. But he who lays his life upon the altar in service of Christ, who strives for his honor, Christ's honor, and for the extension of Christ's kingdom, while keeping self in the background, will spontaneously find true joy and life here and hereafter. In connection with the two, first two thoughts from Jesus, following him means something substantial. This isn't a Twitter follower. This isn't like Luke was looking ahead to the days of Twitter, follow Jesus. No, this is not some sort of peripheral, I'm going to follow on my Twitter feed. 70% of you don't know what I'm even talking about. Uh, Twitter, never mind. Uh, he's not talking about some peripheral following of him. He is talking about um, an actual following that we, not someone we check up on occasionally, but following him at the exclusion of all others. It's not following the desires of my own sinful heart, not following the desire to save my own life above all cost, but following Jesus in whatever way he has for me to go. This is ordinary Christianity. This isn't superhero Christianity. 
If anyone would come after me, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, some of you are thinking, does this, this mean that Darren thinks we should all just quit our jobs and move to some country as missionaries? I mean, that's, I quoted several missionary movements there when we, talk about, uh, when we talked about Jim Elliott and then the Platt uh, church planting quote there. Is this what Darren is saying? We should all quit our jobs, move to some closed country, and, and give our lives up as martyrs, as missionaries? And the answer to that is, no, of course Darren isn't asking that of all of you. But he might be asking it of some. And, and, and let me ask, if, if that was what I was asking of any of you, would that be too far? Would that be too far? What if God is calling you to that? What if God is calling to you to give the remainder of your days in some radical way like that, radical way, which is basic Christianity, of following what God has in front of you and being faithful to his call? Is it too much? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What if God is calling you to that? Matt Chandler has a way of expressing this sentiment, which he says it like this. He says that when you come to Christ, you come and you put your yes on the altar. When you come to Christ, you come and you put your yes on the altar. When you come to Jesus, seeing him as your all-satisfying Savior, you lay down your own life and you lay down your yes to whatever he would have for you. For some of us, though, he will not be calling us to radical life somewhere deserving of a novel someday. Someone's going to write a big biography about us someday. But he's calling us to discipleship in the same way. The call, instead of playing out on maybe a radical mission field, is carried out in the workplace. It's carried out in your neighborhood. It's carried out in your family unit, among your friends as you seek to follow Jesus by denying yourself and taking up your cross What I want to call us to and what I think Jesus is calling us to is to self-denial. Giving up. Giving up that which will not satisfy. That's what you're giving up. When you look down at these next verses, we'll probably come back to this next week. When it says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The answer is implied. It's a rhetorical question. You haven't gained anything. He's calling us to give up that which will not satisfy to gain what we could have never achieved on our own. When I think about the the high school age kids being sold this false bill of goods, that they pursue their own dreams and their own desires, that they'll pursue what they want, what they desire, their own self-motivations. When I hear them doing that, my heart is grieved. When I think about adults my age still buying the lie that if they keep pursuing their joys here in this life and that one day they will come, one day they'll be fulfilled by pursuing their dreams here, I'm grieved. When I think of those just into or close to retirement age, thinking through that fulfillment has has proved wrong all the way along and maybe now or soon I'll finally get to the place where, oh, everything's what I want it to be. I'm grieved. What if you have gained? What have you gained? If you have gained the whole world and forfeited your soul. If you could gain it all and you don't have Jesus, what have you really gained? And the answer is nothing. You've gained nothing. But, but if you lose your life, if you give it up to be spent for Christ, And to be spent for the gospel, you have gained everything. And gaining what you could have never have gained 
on your own. You have gained everything. I'll close with these words from the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3. He says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. When Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. And in dying, gaining Christ. And in gaining Christ, gaining everything. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would draw us to yourself, God. Help us in this place this morning. I confess, God, I confess that I pursue so many gains apart from you, God. And I repent I repent of self-sufficiency, self-desire, self-will. God, forgive. And God, fill us with your Holy Spirit that we would hear your call and follow, denying self, taking up our cross, and following our Savior. God, knowing that in that, though we may lose the world, we will gain you. We have gained you. And in gaining you, we have gained everything. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.